Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Okay, the title of uh, of our study this morning, as you can see there, uh, is Some Better Thing for Us. And this comes from a particular Bible verse. You might be familiar with it, maybe not, but we're going to look at it in a minute, and we'll look at see what we can learn uh, as to what this better thing for us is uh, all about. If uh, I were to ask you, where in the Bible do we find the one chapter that lists all the heroes of faith, the chapter of faith, you would straight away think of? Hebrews, which chapter? 11, right? We all know that. That's like the honor roll of, of the faithful of all the ages, all the heroes, all the uh, outstanding characters that were faithful to God that are recorded there by Paul as he goes through them uh, chronologically. Uh, a very favorite chapter to a lot of people, uh, one that uh, I enjoy reading through, and, and so do a lot of people. I'm sure some of you can relate to that as well. But that chapter actually ends uh, with a very puzzling verse. Very puzzling, two verses actually, at the very end of the chapter. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or we can, you can look at the screen, whichever you want. But we want to explore this, uh, these couple of verses. Hebrews 11, last two verses, verse, verse 39 and 40. After listing all these big heroes of faith and going through all this impressive account of what they've done, and then he says, I'm out of time to mention, oh, so many others. And then he says this, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Interesting verse. It kind of gives you something. There's something more. All these years of faith, he says they were lacking something. There's something that they did not have, something that they did not receive, called the promise, right? And this promise has to do with being made perfect. So uh, maybe this gives us a little bit of a different perspective as to the point of the chapter. Hopefully we're going to see that as we go along. But this promise, it says in verse 40, God provided something, some better thing for who? For us. Better than whom? Than them. Right? That's the point he's making here. He's telling us, basically, look at all these heroes of faith, all they did, all they accomplished. Well, I want to tell you something. All of these people didn't receive something. They didn't receive the promise. God actually prepared something better for who? For us. And then he says, the day without us should not be made perfect. It has to do with being made perfect. Well, what does that really mean? Are you, you know, is, is the verse trying to suggest that there is something today better for us than this impressive list of people had? That's what we want to discover. That's what we want to find out. What this better thing is that has to do with this promise that they did not receive. <clears throat> Who are some of the outstanding characters mentioned in Hebrews 11? You'll have to speak up a little bit. Uh, okay, Abraham. Rahab. David, okay, you've got some big heavyweights like Enoch, right? He's in heaven. Moses, the, 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 the figure that represents the whole Old Testament and the law, and all the ones you mentioned, Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, Moses, yeah, that's right. Elijah, they're all mentioned there. Well, Elijah's not mentioned by name. He's referred to by description. But big heavyweights, right, of, of faith, people we really look up to. And then it says these people didn't receive <clears throat> the promise. What is this promise? We want to explore this verse a little bit. What is this promise that they did not receive? This will help us understand what the verse, uh, rest of the verse is talking about. This better thing has to do with this promise. It has to do with being made perfect. <clears throat> Galatians 3.8 gives us the answer as to what this promise is all about. Notice what it says. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. This promise that was made to Abraham has to do with 
the gospel. That's what it's summarized as. That's the promise of the gospel. In you shall all nations of uh, shall all nations be blessed. Of course, when he's talking here uh, a little later in, in Galatians, it says uh, he, the Bible uh, refers to it as seed one, not many, because the seed is who is Christ. So the promise here has to do with Christ. That in Christ there is coming this blessing that will impact and affect all nations, and this is referred to as the gospel. This is the overriding primary promise of the entire scriptures. Uh, the Old Testament with all its prophecies, with all its promises, with all its great things that it foretells, this is the one overriding promise that was given to Abraham. The coming of the seed who will bring a blessing to everyone. It is the gospel promise. The most important of all uh, the promises. And uh, this <clears throat> promise is mentioned in a number of places. Here is, here is another verse. Acts 13, 23, uh, Paul preaching says, Of this man's seed, that's Abraham's seed, hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. They're here talking, of course, after the fact. He's preaching to these people, to the Jews, and he's telling them, Listen, according to the promise of God, now this has been fulfilled from the seed of Abraham, he raised to Israel a Savior. This Savior is Jesus. Did Abraham see the fulfillment of that promise that was given to him? No. Did any of the fathers? No, but they all believed it, they all embraced it, and they looked forward to it, but they did not receive or they did not see the fulfillment of the promise. You with me? And so when Paul is listing them in Hebrews 11, he's saying all these people, they died in faith, having not received the promise. Very important uh, to keep that in mind. And he goes on a few verses down the same chapter, Acts 13, uh, 32. It says, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, we know which promise that is now, that's what, this, the seed that comes uh, through Abraham, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is written also, uh, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What he's basically telling them is simply that this promise that the fathers had received for all these years and ages, we, their children now, have it fulfilled. And it's fulfilled in that Christ has come. The coming of the seed. And this is this one overriding, overarching promise of all promises. It's important to identify this promise and exactly what it is because it will really help us appreciate what point Paul is trying to make in Hebrews 11 at the end of that chapter. And, uh, and I think it's actually an amazing, uh, amazing aspect to that chapter. <clears throat> now, Abraham, we said he did not see the fulfillment of this promise, correct? And none of these other people who are mentioned in that chapter, see the fulfillment of the promise. Simply meaning none of them lived to see Christ come as a man. That's what they all died before the promise was realized. That's, that's really what it's saying. Uh, but Abraham, Jesus says something about him in John 8, 56. says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What does that mean? What is, for, let's, let's try and break down a little, that a little bit. What is my day? When he says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Who was speaking? Christ. What's he talking about when he says my day? Okay, when he would come into this world. Abraham saw it. So it was promised to Abraham. It was actually revealed to Abraham. Whether he saw it in, in, in prophetic vision or he understood what would happen. But he saw the day of Christ. And he was glad. He looked forward to it. But he did not experience it. Very likely he would have probably seen it at that experience uh, on the mountain when he had to offer up his son and he gained a deeper insight as to what would happen when God would one day give his only begotten son to die. And no one would then stop the knife from coming down and killing him. He would actually really die. So maybe it was in that experience that he gained an insight and he saw something about the day of Christ and he rejoiced. He was glad that there is a redeemer. That was the promise that was given to him. In your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. 
And this is why he believed that promise. And he and his children, all the fathers looked forward to that. And so this is why it's very significant from Paul when he's preaching. He tells those Israel, he says, listen, the promise that was made to our fathers, God has fulfilled to us, their children. That's what's so significant about it. They were all looking forward and waiting for that glorious event to happen. <clears throat> and this eagerness and this anticipation is uh, expressed in the words of Jesus. In Matthew 3, 13, 17, I, I mentioned this verse the other day, but here it is. We can read it together. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Why is that? Why is Jesus saying that? Because when he was here on earth, this was the culmination and the fulfilling of that greatest of all promises that all the people of the Old Testament looked forward to with eagerness and anticipation. They wished that they could live in that time. Abraham is the, is the only one that is mentioned as, as having seen it. But here Jesus says, listen, they wanted to see it more than just in prophetic vision or, or to just get a glimpse and insight into it. They wanted to experience, to see what you're seeing, to hear what you're hearing, and they did not. Many prophets and righteous men would, would, would it be fair to say the list in Hebrews 11 includes many prophets and righteous men? Right? So you see what Jesus is saying here? That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He says, all these people, I want you to know something. They all died in faith. They obtained a good report, excellent resume they have. But they did not receive the promise. And according to Jesus, they all looked forward with great anticipation. What I'm trying to portray to you is... This uh, generational buildup of expectation and longing among God's faithful people for the fulfillment of the promise. This is really the point that's being made. Jesus is telling, listen, the, the culmination, all these people, they were looking forward to something eagerly. They longed to see what you're seeing and to hear what you're hearing. But they didn't. Obviously, uh, clearly what Jesus is also indicating is that you need to realize and appreciate what you guys are experiencing. It's what all these people wanted, but you are the ones who actually are getting to experience it. You're the ones who are getting to see it. You're the ones who are getting to hear it. That they were <clears throat> living the realization and the fulfillment of the promise. Now we are on the same side as these disciples, brothers and sisters. That's the point for us here today as well. We are living at the time when this promise has come about. It has been fulfilled. It has been realized. We're no longer looking forward with great anticipation to the coming of the seed. Yes, we're going, we're looking forward to the second coming, but this is the promise that actually accomplished salvation, that brings the blessing to all nations. When Jesus comes a second time, he's going to come to take those who have been blessed by that blessing home. The one that, what matters, if you're ready or not for the second coming, is how you deal with this promise, how you respond to that. So this is why in the book of Hebrews, yeah, it, it, uh, it builds on that established fact that the promise is now here. And many times it talks about, we now see Jesus. It talks about considering our high priest, the apostle and high priest of our profession. That's the promise that they did not receive. And that is what helps us appreciate and understand what this better thing is that God prepared for us. Because that's what it says. They did not receive the promise. God having prepared some better thing for whom? For us. And when he says us, who is he talking about? He includes himself, the author, and his listeners, and those who will read the epistle. That's his point here. Some better thing for us. And this better thing has to do with being made what? Perfect. We want to forget that. We want to keep these points of the verse. And I was just going in order to try and understand it. Being made perfect. That they without us should not be made perfect. What does that mean? That in order for them to be perfect, who has to be perfect? Us. It says they without us cannot be made perfect. Correct? So for them to attain to perfection or to be made perfect, who has to be made perfect? Us. And that is why there is this promise, they did not receive it, but God prepared this better thing for us so that everyone can be perfect together, but not without us. That's his point here. What does this mean about being made perfect? 
well, I'm, I'm going over the verse and it's right, right it's on my next slide. Uh, what does this mean with having to be made perfect? This is a very key point, how all these aspects link together that will help us understand what the verse is talking about. And, and when we understand it, hopefully we will have this, this massive wow moment. That's, that's the whole point. Because I think for the most part, we really miss the whole point of Hebrews 11. We really miss the whole point of Hebrews 11. We misread it. It's, uh, we think the author is trying to do something, but what he's trying to do is something totally different with that chapter. And we're going to analyze it hopefully carefully and see, uh, and see the point. Without us, they could not be made perfect. <clears throat> what does the coming of Christ as the seed, which is the fulfilling of the promise, what does that have to do with being made perfect? Because that's really what it's about. Does the coming of Christ have anything to do with being made perfect? And the answer is yes. Well, how so? Let's explore that uh, a little bit. Same epistle answers the question. Hebrews 2.10, notice what it says. For it became him, that's Christ, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Talking about Christ particularly there in the end. He is the captain of our salvation. And it says he was made, what? Perfect, how? Through suffering. Did Jesus need to be made perfect? Well, someone said, well, hold on, I thought he was perfect. He's the son of God. He was perfect. What, what does it mean when it says he, he, he needed to be made perfect through suffering? This is talking about him as a, a man, as a human being. When he came as a man, he perfected humanity and the process how he perfected humanity was through suffering doesn't mean he wasn't perfect before of course he's the perfect son of god but now he's a man he took on man after four thousand years of sin and as a man now he is in the process of perfecting humanity and this is why it says he was making the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering a little later, same, book, uh, same epistle, Hebrews 5, 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So this is why he had to be made perfect as a man. Because that's what enables him to become our savior. He became the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. So I want to ask you a question. Could Christ become the author of our, of our salvation without being made perfect as a man? The answer is no. That's why he had to go through this experience. It wasn't just, well, let's fill 30 years with some activity. No, there was a process. It was part of the plan of salvation. Going through that experience, he was perfecting humanity. What he was doing, he was saving us. He was authoring the plan of salvation. His life is where he was authoring that plan of salvation as he was being made perfect through suffering. And that's why in the next chapter, well, uh, sorry, uh, a few chapters later, it tells us a little bit more about what that has to do with us. So just important point here to keep in mind, Christ did not author salvation before he was made perfect as a man. It's a very important point to keep in mind. Uh, but what does him being made perfect have to do with us being made Perfect, because that's what the verse in Hebrews 11 says. It says about all these heroes of faith. It says that they without us should not be made perfect. So it's talking about us and them. It's not really talking about Christ. What does Christ, having going through this process, being made perfect, what does that have to do with our perfection? Are they related? And the answer is yes, they certainly are. Hebrews 10, 14. Notice what it says. For by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified what's the one offering christ dying on the cross he died as a perfected human being correct so when he offered up himself and he died and he said it is finished what that accomplishes here it has an impact on us what does it do it perfected forever them that are Sanctified. That's his people. That's his believers. That's who believe on his name. So his offering, his perfect offering is the means whereby we are made 
perfect or perfected, correct? You see how this is building, the connection? So this is why he's telling us in Hebrews, they didn't receive the promise, which is the coming of Christ. God prepared something better for us so that they without us cannot be made perfect. Here is how we are made perfect, brothers and sisters. Through this one perfect offering of the captain of our salvation. Very, very significant point. Did they have that before Christ was perfected as a man? No. That's why it says, they all died in faith. They obtained a good report, but they didn't have this promise. This is called a better thing that God prepared for whom? For us. Very, very interesting. And so this is why in the next chapter, chapter 11, we have this particular point emphasized. We're familiar with the, with the chapter after that. <coughs> Notice what it says in Hebrews 12. We could even recite these verses, I think. But here is what it says. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Okay, let's just stop here for a minute. What's, what's he talking about here? Chapter 12 obviously comes straight after chapter 11, particularly after the end of chapter 11. This is the next verses. He says, we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. What's the cloud of witnesses? All the people that he just finished listing, right, in Hebrews 11. Then he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So now we can look to Jesus. Now we see him, and he has authored and finished our faith. When did he author and finish our faith? He was authoring it through his life as a man where he was being made perfect through the things that he suffered. And he was authoring that, authoring that until he got to where he finished it. When did it finish? When he said, it is finished. And so it's his life and death that is where he accomplished how he became the author and finisher of our faith. And then Hebrews told us, and being uh, made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who believe. And through this one offering, he has perfected forever those that are sanctified. You with me? This is very significant to note the points that the Hebrews is noting. We're, we're picking the highlights here so we can see a, a, a progression, which is very, very significant. The author and finisher of our faithful for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here it is. It spells it out. And brothers and sisters, this is the better thing for us. Salvation before this time was not yet authored and finished. You realize that? It was promised. And the people believed the promise, but it was not yet accomplished. It was not yet authored and finished. For that to happen, Christ had to be a man. He had to suffer as a man. He had to be perfected and he had to die. That's what authored and finished our faith. And that is the better thing that God had prepared for us, which they did not receive. And in doing so, we now can be made perfect in him in a way that wasn't possible before. Now, I know that sounds a little bit, wow, you know. Well, let's, let's have a look and see if that is if that is indeed the case or not. This kind of perfection that comes as a result of Christ being made perfect and by that one offering perfecting us, that kind of perfection was not even possible before he accomplished it. You realize that? Now let's look at, uh, we'll back up, we'll go to the book of Hebrews and see how the author of Hebrews actually brings that point very clearly. And we're going to see a chronological buildup here. Notice carefully, Hebrews 7.19. For the law made how much perfect? The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. What's his point here? There are people who are living at a time when all they had was the law, right? And it says here, that was inferior to what we have because the law made nothing perfect. In other words, it made no one perfect. Were some of these people listed in Hebrews 11 living at the time of the law? Yes, well, from Moses onward, that's the law. 
It says the law made nothing perfect. He's making a contrast here. And then it says, but the bringing in of a better hope did. Did what? Did made perfect. Make perfect. What is this better hope? It's the coming of Christ, being made perfect as a man, became the author of eternal salvation. And by that one offering, he perfected forever those that are sanctified. The law wasn't bad. The law was good and just and holy, and it was necessary. But compared to the better hope, it doesn't look as good. That's the point he's making here. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9. Notice the progression he's building to here. Again, it's referring to the same thing, which was a figure for the time present in which were offered, speaking about the law and the tabernacle and the sanctuary and all that, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices <clears throat> that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So he's reminding his readers, these people that were involved in these sacrifices and offerings and going to the temple, I want to tell you something. These things could not make them perfect in their conscience. You see the point he's making here. He's building up to something. Next chapter, Hebrews 10.1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. He keeps, he's like harping on the same point. He's like, okay, we got it, Paul, you know, move on. No, he's, he's trying to make us realize something. He's comparing these two systems, these two covenants, and he's telling you, listen, that one that they had could not make them perfect. And in between, he's telling us about someone who came, who was made perfect, who through one offering can forever perfect us. That's the point he's trying to make here. These sacrifices and offerings could never make them perfect. This is chapter 10, right? What's the next chapter? 11. And then in chapter 11, he launches into a list of all the people who were not made perfect to help you and me appreciate what we have. You realize what he's doing in chapter 11? Then he goes in detail. He says, oh, look, let me list to you. Let me give you a list of all these fantastic, faithful, wonderful people who were not made perfect because that promise was not here. And then he gives us the list. And then at the very end, he says, listen, all these people didn't receive the promise. God prepared something better for us so that they without us cannot be made perfect. Do you see the point that he's making in Hebrews 11? It's, uh, it's very different to how we read Hebrews 11 generally. We read Hebrews 11 thinking, here is a list of all these faithful people to encourage us to be more faithful, to be like them. And we aspire to be like them, which is a great and good thing to do. But that's not the point of the author. The point of the author is we have something better than they had. In other words, we can reach a standard, get this, higher than they reached. Isn't that right? Because they could not be made perfect in this way that now Christ offers for us. I want to spend some time looking at that because I don't want to disturb some people's thinking about some of these characters in Hebrews 11. You know what? Someone would say, well, What's the difference? You know, are you, trying, are you trying to say all these people are not perfect? You've got some very, very impressive names in that list there. You know, what are you trying to say? We're just following the point that Paul is making in Hebrews. He's building up to something. He's trying to illustrate the benefits of what has occurred as a result of what Christ came and accomplished for us. It's like he's telling his listeners or his, his, you know, his readers, do you realize what we have now in Christ? And that's what I want to tell you today, right? Do we, do we realize what we really have in Christ, in this covenant, in this new covenant? That's why he talks about the blood of the new covenant. And really, the blood of the new covenant, blood is what? It's life, right? This is the active ingredient of the new covenant. It is, excuse me, the life of Christ, particularly the life where, which was perfected as a man, the life where salvation was authored and finished. That is the active ingredient of the new covenant. This is what it's all about. And this is what the priesthood of Christ is all about. Now, I want to deal with this aspect of, of perfection a little bit, because a lot of, there's a lot of talk today about perfection and perfectionism and, and being perfect and not being perfect. And 
Am I trying to imply that all these Old Testament people were not perfect? You know, the Bible says in, about Job, he was a perfect man. And many other examples, you know, what, what, what are we trying to say here? There's something in the scriptures that, uh, <clears throat> that we need to understand as far as how God looks at perfection and what God expects when it comes to perfection. And I'll tell you right at the outset, it's not always the same. And we're going to see why. <clears throat> the, Hebrews in, uh, the heroes in Hebrews 11 were perfect in their sphere, in their standard, in what was available to them at the time. We are in another sphere and we have other things available to us at this time which enables us to reach a certain level that was not possible for them, not because of their faithlessness, not because they were bad people, but because they lived at the time prior to the fulfillment of the promise. You with me? And so uh, what I call that, how I refer to that, is relative perfection. Okay? Relative Perfection. In other words, perfection is relative to where you are and what is available to you at that time. There are different spheres, there are different periods, there are different things that are available. Everything is not always the same throughout the history of the world. There is clearly people who lived before the cross, before the promise was realized, people who live after the cross, after the promise is realized. That makes a difference. The cross made a huge difference. Anyway, this is the brief summary of what we're going to look at in detail here. So I just want to explain it first. And then we'll look at it in detail as to what we are really talking about. Jesus said it, Matthew 5, 48, very often quoted text and equally often abused text. Be therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. We all know this verse, right? What did Jesus mean? Be perfect. Usually people who like to emphasize keeping the law in every detail and aspect and, and so on. This verse comes up quite right. Look, be perfect as God is perfect, brother. Sister, you need to be perfect just as God is perfect. That's what Jesus said. What's Jesus mean? Can you be perfect as God is perfect? You can't. God exists and operates in a sphere not like ours. He is perfect as God. We cannot be perfect as God. We can only be perfect as people, as redeemed people in our sphere. And so the standard of perfection is going to be different. You with me? You're not going to have perfect uh, knowledge, right? No, none of us will. Or perfect strength or, or perfect abilities or, or any of these things. You understand the point here? What Jesus is saying is he doesn't expect us to be equal to God in being perfect. But we need to reach the maximum in our sphere to be perfect in our sphere just as God is perfect in his sphere and so this is why we're saying it is relative perfection now not, this is not the only verse here but if you look up the, the word perfect there it actually means full grown or mature or reaching the full stature full grown and mature and in the context you'll actually find that what Jesus is referring to is the attribute and character of mercy because we read it the other day a little earlier he says listen your father in heaven he reigns on the just and on the unjust and he's kind to the unthankful and to the holy be therefore perfect as your father in heaven which is is perfect that's what he's talking about your your character your your attitude and how you are in relating with Others, But anyway, let's look at a few other examples. Uh, Jesus illustrated this progressive nature uh, of perfection in different spheres in a very, very good illustration. Here it is, Mark 4, 28, 29. Uh, Mark chapter 4, 28 and 29. How's our time? Okay, here's what he says. <clears throat> For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. First the blade... Then the ear, after that, the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he put it in the sickle because the harvest is come. Four stages, right? According to Jesus, four stages of growth as far as the corn is concerned. He's illustrating something. First is the ear, uh, the blade, thank you, sorry. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear then. 
ripe fruit or harvest, four stages. And at each level of growth, the plant is fully grown for that particular stage. A blade is a perfect blade. It's not an ear, it's a blade. If it reaches that level, it is a perfect blade. The next stage is another level where it can grow to become an ear. When it grows to be an ear, it is a perfect ear and so on. You with me? Very, very important principle. It's very, very significant for us to grasp a hold of that. The blade is not a perfect harvest. The harvest is a different category. It requires different circumstances for it to be harvest. It requires more rain at the end. Over here, when it's the blade, it's not even the season for harvest. It's not the right conditions for harvest. So it's not a perfect harvest, but it is a perfect blade. You with me? And this progressive nature that at each stage, it is perfect in that sphere, is illustrative of also the entire stream of humanity. If we were to put that on a timeline, we're to put the cross there in the middle, and I just put some markers here to, to give us a bit of an idea of what's where. This is obviously the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, this is the death of Christ, he's raised, and there is a Pentecost there. And uh, we were to put these different stages of growth, we find that there is a progression of development for each stage, it is perfect. This is really what it looks like when we look at the entire case for humanity. There were people who lived at that time, in that period, with these conditions, they reached the perfect level that was available to them at the time. The coming of Christ brought about different conditions and introduced a whole different level, which allows us to reach another stage in development, ultimately leading to a harvest. We know there is going to be a harvest at the end, right? The harvest is not at the beginning. You don't go harvest blades and expect you'll get a good crop of corn. And so the harvest, which is at the end, can only happen after all these stages of development take place. Remember what Hebrews said? They without us should not be made perfect. And so the perfection that he's dealing with in the book of Hebrews is at this stage over here. He's saying they were over there. They did not have what we have available to us. And so that's why they were not made perfect in, on this level. That's what he's talking about. You with me? Not that they were not perfect in their sphere, but he's saying now that we have this level, in other words, a blade at this stage of the crop is not good anymore. At the full, if it's there, you know it's not going to make it to harvest. Correct? That's the point he's making. And Jesus illustrates that extremely well with this, uh, with this parable, with this illustration that he gives. And so the coming of Christ brought us to this other level, this other level that Paul calls the better thing for us. Only Christ could accomplish the coming of the, the accomplishment, uh, accomplish the bringing about of a harvest. Notice how Christ puts it. Speaking about himself, obviously. John 12, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Who is he talking about here? Himself. He's representing himself as, the, as, as this uh, corn of wheat. And then he says, my, in other words, he's saying, my death is necessary for you to be saved. That's what he's saying. If he hadn't come and died, he would abide alone. He would not have saved humanity. But in his death, he can bring forth much fruit. What's the ultimate result of fruit? Harvest, right? In other words, for the harvest to take place, Christ had to come and die. He had to come as a man, be perfected as a man, accomplish salvation, and by that one offering, perfect us who are sanctified. Only then... Can he expect much fruit? So before that time, it was actually impossible for anyone to reach the level of harvest. Correct? That's the point he's making here. So I, I, I want us to not miss 
when we talk about perfection, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. There is a fantastic progression that if we miss in the scriptures, we really miss something so significant. We miss the point of what the author is talking about. Let's look at it another way where Jesus puts it. Luke 12, 48. This is the parable of the <clears throat> uh, those who were given instruction by their master what they were to do. And notice what he says. But he that knew not... That's his master's will. And did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few, with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. That's the point I want to focus on here. Here is the principle. If you're given much, you are ex uh, much is expected in return. Right? If you water one plant more than the other, you expect it to grow more. If you give it fertilizer and you really take care of it, you will expect that it will give you a better yield than this neglected one that you didn't touch, right? If you take that same principle and apply it to what we're talking about here in the stream of time, Paul is saying in Hebrews 11, we have been given much more than these people that lived before. And therefore, we are expected to reach a much higher standard called perfection. A perfection that they did not have to the same extent and same level because they did not have available to them what we have available to us. Because they all died in faith, having not received the promise. God prepared something better for us. And therefore he expects from us to give in return something better. That's what Jesus is teaching and that's what he's saying. So uh, that's a really high... Uh, High standard, you're sitting there, brother, someone might say. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. We have in Christ something, brothers and sisters, that enables us to be made perfect in a way that these people longed for, dreamed about, wished that they could live in an experience. We have that. We're going to see that a little bit as well as we go. <clears throat> it's another sphere. It's another level that's open to us. I think you get that. I don't want to keep going on and on about it. But someone might say, well, hold on, this doesn't sound right. Look, perfection is perfection. You're just making stuff up. Look, you're either perfect or you're not perfect. That's it. You're just confusing us with all this stuff. When we are in heaven, we'll be perfect, right? Are, do you think that after a thousand years, we're going to grow in things and, 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 and approximate more to God's uh, likeness? Or we're just going to stay the same? Yes, we'll grow. We, do you think our love for God will increase? Or, or it's going to say that, okay, so, so there is, even in heaven, there is growth. So the principle of, this is for perfect, holy, sinless people, right? Forget sin, forget. So there is growth. The principle of growth is, is a God-ordained principle. It's in nature. Jesus uses it to illustrate spiritual realities. And it also applies to the whole experience of humanity. The race of Adam. If you look at humanity as one person, the race of Adam, we have been growing. And we are now at the stage where we're approaching the... Harvest stage. You with me? Just to illustrate the point. So there's a number of ways that this is that this is brought out. Uh, <clears throat> even how God revealed things, even God's revelations about Himself is progressive. God is revealed now more about Himself than ever before. The people uh, in, in the days of Moses, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have some of the things that we know and understand. And so there is a growth of revelation because God now is giving us more and therefore there is a greater expectation. And what God is doing is basically watering this plant of humanity. He's giving more and more because humanity is being prepared to approach the stage of harvest. We are at the stage of this harvest now. These people back then were not. That's the point Paul is making. We have something better for us. Christ illustrates this, this progression and this difference in a number of ways. I want to focus on a particular one, which really brings it out well. And hopefully, it's an encouragement for us. You know, sometimes maybe hearing something like this will say, boy, I can't even reach the standard of Joseph or Daniel. You're telling me I have to go even higher? <laughs> right? We read Hebrews 11 and think, man, I wish my name would have made it there. Would you be happy if you had your name in Hebrews 11? Of course we would. But, but I know I can, I wish I can be there. What Paul is saying is trying to use these people not to encourage us, to come up to their level, guys. He's saying, listen, we need to bypass that level. That's his point. We have something they did not have. We need to run with endurance this race that is set before us. 
So that's, uh, that's what I want to encourage you with today. If you thought Daniel and Joseph and that was a good place to reach, well, think again. We got more to go. But brothers and sisters, the point is Christ is trying to finish the work. That's the thing. He can't harvest the crop if it's only, uh, you know, ears and blades. It needs to be a full corn in the ear, a, a, a mature fruit. Then he can bring the harvest. That's why the angel tells him in Revelation, okay, thrust in your sickle and reap now, because now the harvest of the earth is ripe. The coming of Christ, dying as that wheat of corn, that's what brings forth fruit. And as we grow in that, we reach that ripe, mature harvest stage where heaven says, okay, now you can go collect them. And at that stage, when we are made perfect, not only will we be made perfect, but so will everyone else that lived before. They will be gathered because they, without us, cannot be made perfect. In other words, they're waiting for who? For us. That's why they're sitting in the grave waiting, right? David and Abraham and all these people are waiting. Who are they waiting for? They're waiting for God to, to do something. They're waiting for the rest of the crop to reach the stage of harvest so they can also be collected. So not only are Hebrews 11 people, you know, set as an example for us that we are to reach and then even go further, but the pressure now is on for us because they're waiting for us. And in the kingdom, maybe they will come and, and ask us, who, where are the people who are living in the last days? You, oh, they'll say, all oh, these guys over there in that corner. They'll come and say, you know, guys, thank you, but what took you so long? <laughs> they don't know the passage of time and death, okay? You know what I mean? I'm just, just someone say, oh, they're counting time in the grave. No, but you know, that's the point, just illustrating. What took you so long? What's taking us so long? They say, what, what year did it uh, finish? Oh, 2016. Wow, went to 2016. Unbelievable. Didn't Christ come like 2,000 years before? It took you 2,000 years since the coming of the seed. We were looking forward to that. It took you 2,000 years. I'm just trying to encourage us, brothers and sisters, because we have, in the coming of Christ, what these people longed for so much. Are we really making use of what we have available to us? That's the question. That's the challenge. Okay. This other illustration, what Jesus said about John, John the Baptist, Matthew eleven thirteen. for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John He's talking about John the Baptist. What does that mean? <clears throat> all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. What does that mean? No more law, no more prophets after John. No, the burden of the old Testament. That's what the law and the prophets are culminates or finds its fulfillment in John. John is a marking point that ushers in the fulfillment of all the prophets and the prophecies and the law. So John is a transition point or a marker, a very important marker. Something would actually change or come about after John. That's the implication here. The law and the prophets prophesied until John. He explains it in the parallel passage in Luke, Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John, same thing. And then he says this, since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. From that time, what time? The time of John, right? So just saying, look, John stands as a very important marker, a transition point. The law and the prophets were until John. And from the time of John, something else now, we're in another stage. We're in another level called the preaching of the kingdom of God and every man presseth into it. <clears throat> what is this preaching of the kingdom of God? If we were to illustrate it this way, this is all the law and the prophets. They were all until John, right? That's what Christ said when Christ came and John was the herald or the, the forerunner before Christ. It says, the law and the prophets were until John. And from the time of John, the kingdom of God is preached. You know what that means? It was never preached before. You realize that's what he's saying, right? It was prophesied that one day it would come. John is the first person, biblically, who actually preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. Because it was from that point on that the kingdom now is near. What does the kingdom of God mean? We're going to look at that as well, because misunderstanding that causes us to misunderstand some of these verses. Jesus, when he began to preach, he also preached the same thing, right? Repent, believe the gospel. Why? 
For the kingdom of God is at hand. What does at hand mean? Near. When we talk about the kingdom, generally, what do we understand? Heaven. It's not, I'm, not, I'm going to answer my questions from now on, so nobody thinks I have trick questions. Heaven, right? We talk about the kingdom of God. When Jesus preaches, and says, repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. It means it's near. 2,000 years, is that near? No. Jesus was not talking about his second coming and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was talking about something that would happen very soon. He actually told his disciples, when you go preach, he sent them out. He says, this is what you preach. Go heal the sick and, and raise the dead and preach the gospel and tell them that the kingdom of God is at hand. There was an urgent message that this thing called the kingdom of God was about to come. And he says, listen, the law and the prophets were until John. And from that time of John, this kingdom is preached. And people are actually what? Pressing into it. Correct? I'm just trying to understand the verses, okay? Just uh, stay with me. What is this kingdom of God? What are we talking about here? It's a kingdom that actually Christ came to set up with his life and with his death and with his resurrection. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he says, pray our Father which art in heaven. What's the next line? Yeah, hallowed be thy name. Okay, that's right. Next line. Thy kingdom come. That's the one I was looking for. I missed the line there. Thy kingdom come. When we pray that, what do we mean? The disciples were praying that at the time when Jesus said, the kingdom is at hand. They were preaching, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. Thy kingdom come. Has that kingdom come yet or not? We usually pray it looking forward to the second coming. And in so doing, we actually miss something very, very important. There was a kingdom that did come at that time. Jesus preached it, the disciples preached it, John the Baptist preached it. And it was announced from heaven. Revelation 12.10, we're not going to go into detail here, but here is the announcement in heaven that marks that. This is after Christ is born. He's raised, he goes to heaven. It says, you know, he's called up to God. This man child that's born to the woman that stands on the sun, on the moon, with, on, the, on, the, on the moon, with the sun behind her, a crown of 12 stars. And she has a male child. She gives birth, the dragon tries to attack him, but he's called up to God and to his throne. That's Christ. Summarizes his mission. And then after that, it says, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accuse them before our God day and night. Very significant verse. What is the meaning of this verse? When it says, now is come salvation. When did salvation come? When Christ authored and finished our faith and went to heaven. He authored and it didn't come before. That's the time when it came. So when it says, now has come salvation. You know which period this is referring to, right? And notice with the coming of salvation, what else comes? Now has come salvation and what? And strength and what else? And the kingdom of our God. And what else? And the power of his Christ. When did you see the power of his Christ? The day of Pentecost. That's a direct result of what Christ accomplished as a man in the plan of salvation. Heaven is making an announcement saying, listen, with what Christ has now accomplished, this is the stage we're at. Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God. The kingdom that was preached by John, the kingdom that was preached by Jesus, the kingdom that was preached by the disciples has now come. And the evidence is the rest of the verse. What's the evidence? Because the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. When was the devil cast down? We straight away think, oh, creation, there, the war in heaven. No, this is not what he's talking about here. When was the devil cast down? When Christ went to heaven after having defeated him on earth and became our high priest. Now Christ became the representative of humanity. Because up until that time, who was the representative of humanity? The devil, because he stole that from Adam. So what is happening here is another stage in the game. Very important stage where now salvation, strength, and the kingdom of God and the power of Christ has come and the devil is cast down. That's what Paul is talking about, okay? God, Paul is saying, listen, God prepared something better for us that they without us should not be made perfect. So there is this distinction about the kingdom of God before 
and after. And John the Baptist stands at the marking point of the transition between before and after. Now, of course, when we talk about the kingdom of God here, we're talking about, as we shall see in a, in a little while, uh, it's a spiritual kingdom that has been set up first and foremost. Okay? Because uh, people were looking for a physical kingdom, and that's what threw a lot of people off. But notice this verse, and hopefully this verse will make a little bit more sense now. If you've ever wondered about this verse, Luke 7, 28, Jesus again speaking, for I say unto you, amongst those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of God, right? Generally read this verse and think heaven. That's how I used to read it. And it's still a puzzling verse. What does Jesus mean? That the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. But then he wants us to understand something. John the Baptist was greater than all that were before him. So would it be safe to say, just to put all these pieces together, would it be safe to say that John is greater than all the names of the people in Hebrews 11? According to Jesus, yes. So if you want to find the, you know, the best example who reached the highest, according to Jesus, John the Baptist. So all these people in Hebrews 11, now you have this John the Baptist who comes to, to this higher place. And Jesus says, listen, he's greater. Then he says the whole point of what he's trying to, to make here. Then he says this interesting part in the last section of the verse. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than... John the Baptist. What's he talking about when he says he that is least in the kingdom of God? It's the kingdom that they were preaching. It's the kingdom that heaven announced when Christ went to heaven and said, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God. Jesus is saying, listen, now that we're living in this stage, now that I've introduced this stage, the least person in this kingdom can reach a level higher than John, who was higher than everyone before him. Whoa. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? Do we real, really realize what Jesus is saying? Let me try and illustrate this so we can see it. Here is John, right? These are all the prophets before him. According to Jesus, says John is greater than all that were born of women. Greater than all these prophets. There's no one greater than John the Baptist. And then this kingdom, he says, this kingdom of God, which began to be preached, which was established with the death and the resurrection of Christ and announced in heaven, this kingdom of God is going to have people in it. And then he says, the least person in this kingdom is greater than John, so John sets the bar as the highest for that stage of development. What Jesus is saying here, we're in stage two, so to speak. And in this stage, the lowest is going to be higher than John the Baptist. Not better. Okay, not that John is, is in a lower order, but this is just as when we say that the ear is higher than the blade or better in that sense not that oh this is bad this is good this is a perfect one but in this stage this is so much better this is more advanced this is more grown and just like when we say the full corn is even better and the harvest is better yet that's what jesus is saying here with the kingdom of god or the kingdom of heaven it is referred to as well this is what we also know as the new covenant. That's when the new covenant began. That's when it was ratified. That's when it commenced. That's when it began. Isn't that right? That's what Jesus brought about and accomplished. Now, I'll ask you a question here. <clears throat> was John in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that he preached? Okay. No, he didn't. Jesus, according to words of Jesus, he isn't. Because he says, look, John preached his kingdom. He's the greatest of all the prophets. But he that is least in the kingdom is greater than John. Meaning John did not live to see the kingdom 
and be in it. He preached it, but he died before it. He did not live to see that. And so John marks the end of one age and the transition into the other. And this is why the Apostle Paul say, says, we have something better prepared for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. It was on the day of Pentecost that the outpouring of the riches of heaven occurred. Something that had never been seen before, right? Pentecost was something that never happened before. None of the people who ever lived before that time had anything, any experience resembling what happened on the day of Pentecost. It was something else. It was this outpouring. Even John the Baptist didn't live to see that. And what Jesus is saying, those people that experienced that, and from then on, if you are in the kingdom, now another level is open to you that is that is defined or explained as greater than John. Now, if I want you to stop and just think about that for a minute, let that sink into your mind. If we really realize what that means, that is really amazing. That is truly amazing. When the Holy Spirit was sent down from heaven, this is what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. Notice carefully. For the promise is unto you and to your children. And to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What is the promise that he's talking about? It's that promise that all the fathers did not receive. The coming of the seed and accomplishing salvation and giving to us his life or his spirit. Because that's what he's talking about. That you might receive the Holy Spirit. Be baptized so you can receive the Holy Spirit. Because this promise is to you and to your children. And that Holy Spirit, of course, is none other than the very life of Christ. The very least one that receives this promise is in the kingdom of heaven or in the kingdom of God and is thereby at a greater place than John was. In other words, we have more available to us. And therefore, we have more that is expected from us. Luke 17, 20 and 21. Jesus explains about the kingdom. Because this is misunderstood even today, sometimes. But when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within. In other words, the kingdom of God is not physical, sorry, physical and visible at first. The kingdom of God first is where? Within. And this is the kingdom that was preached, and this is the kingdom that was established. And this is the kingdom that Jesus talks about when he says, from the time of, the, from the time of John, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. The day of Pentecost marks the official public declaration of the kingdom of God. And 3,000 people came into the kingdom of God that day. And this is why when Jesus says this famous verse that we sing, seek ye first what? The kingdom of God. You understand now what he's talking about? Seek first. Make your first priority to seek to be in this kingdom. Not the kingdom that is coming. The kingdom that I came and established. That you see the beginning of it publicly on the day of Pentecost. Seek first with all your heart. Seek first that kingdom and God's righteousness. And everything else will be added unto you. A current and present reality. It's not a future thing that is yet to come. We are to seek this better thing that we now have available to us. <clears throat> So this is the challenge. We're pretty much finished. This is the challenge that I want to leave with you based on this study. Do we really realize what we have? Do we realize what Hebrews 11 is really talking about? That this promise is for us and that's how we can be made perfect. That this kingdom is here. Galatians 3.14 Paul says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is the citizenship qualification for being in this kingdom, to have the Spirit or to have the life 
of the son. That's what it's talking about. Paul says here, this blessing of Abraham, in other words, the blessing that was promised to Abraham, that in your seed shall all nations be blessed, that that blessing might come through Christ on all of everyone, on the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's what the promise of the gospel that was given to Abraham was about, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That Spirit, as a result of what Christ accomplished, comes to us with all His experience. That's what these people in the Old Testament looked forward to. They believed, they trusted, they hoped to experience, but they died in faith, having not received the promise. Paul says, now this is for us. This is for you and me. Do we really realize what we have? I don't think we do. Because if we did, things would be different, right? Things would be extremely different. And so, brothers and sisters, the seed has come. And this life is now ours. The kingdom of God is here. It is not at hand. It is here. First, within. And soon, it will be established physically, visibly where the kingdoms of this world will be destroyed when that one is established. But before it is established physically, it needs to be established in the hearts of God's people. That's the only way to be ready for when Christ comes a second time. So I'll uh, leave it there, and I pray, I earnestly pray, that we will make it our dedicated work to do what Christ said, to seek first that kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. If you are blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.